episode 71 of Strange Brow Radio. I am again your host, Tobe Johnson. Today we are talking to pioneer researcher, author, and discoverer of quantum Bigfoot language, Ron Moorhead. And he couldn't have done it without Scott Nelson, ex-Navy cryptolinguist. We had a conference with them, and some of you were there. But for those who weren't, I felt like, well, why belabor the editing of the video? Let's just get right into the topic, the discussion at hand, and talk quantum Bigfoot language. So, 24 hours after our webinar, we are going to air the audio. Less than 24 hours old. So, quantum Bigfoot language today. Thank you again to our sponsor, Feral by Aaron at Etsy.com. Go to the Etsy store and type in Feral by Aaron, E-R-Y-N, Alchemy Sound Tools at Feral by Aaron at Etsy.com. All right, let me tell you about these guys. We'll be right back. Scott Nelson, Ron Moorhead, two names synonymous with language and Sasquatch. Now Ron fully immersed seeing how his last book, Quantum Bigfoot, redefined how we should look at this mystery. And Scott Nelson, along for the ride. But it doesn't just stop at Scott's lens of looking at language as an ex-Navy cryptolinguist. Uh, the reason that I'm playing you this here so quickly out of the gate is because it's been 10 years since these two met. It's been 10 years since Scott has released the Sasquatch Phonetic Alphabet, or the SPA, to further look into the subject matter of understanding that A, Sasquatch speaks, and it has a language. And where there's language, there's culture. And where there's culture, there is spirit. And we go down some incredible rabbit holes. Now, there is going to be a release of this video here, and you still want to get a hold of this video because there are visual aids that go along with this. Ron did a presentation for Crying Out Loud. Uh, so did Scott. And the back and forth is worth looking at, including the release of this SPA. So the visual aid that goes along with this, I'm going to go ahead and release that with or without the video splicing it together. Um, it needs to be back out into the public eye. And with all the BS going on about the, well, you've seen it, the back and forth between boys arguing over Bluff Creek footage again. What a bunch of crap. Oh, my God. Both sides, dear Lord. Um, anyway, th these guys are so above the... <laughs> the fray with all that back and forth there. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation. This is where a mystery still lays. Ron still is the only one with the complex morphine stream, which is the back and forth of a sentence between two beings or more. And so I look forward to getting this out there for you. I, I planned on waiting a little bit and putting the whole video out. Um, and then, like I said, the video will be available. Now it will be, um, this is like a two hour webinar that we did, a little something that we call quarantine webinars, right? Well, we're all in quarantine. And so if you go to patreon.com, 
that's where I'm putting all my webinars. And for as little as three bucks a month, you can just try out like a bunch of stuff for three bucks and then quit it. You don't have to subscribe for more than three bucks a month and just drop it. And then Ron Moorhead will have this as well at ronmoorhead.com. So if you have sounds, if you want those sounds to be looked at and you feel like Scott Nelson is your man, we talk about a way for you to send those sounds off to get analyzed by uh, Scott, who's got an incredible ear, some might say, a God-given gift of mimicry when it comes to foreign languages, including Sasquatchanese, which is the ultimate foreign language. So, Ron Moorhead of Quantum Bigfoot, researcher from the High Sierra, Scott Nelson, uh, 20 years in the Navy as a enlisted ex-naval cryptolinguist, and you know, Scott's got quite the uh, war stories too, but that's for another time. So, without uh, further ado, from their mutual establishments, we give you quantum Bigfoot language. All right, let's get started here. Out of the gate, everybody knows uh, who we have on screen, I hope, but we'll introduce them nonetheless. Ron Moorhead, Bigfoot researcher, entrepreneur, author of several books, including Quantum Bigfoot, which is where we're headed today, including Quantum Bigfoot language. Thanks for joining us, Ron. Thanks for having me, Scott. Or excuse me, uh, Toby. Scott, you can call me Scotty. <laughs> And Scott Nelson, 20 years a teacher at Wentworth College prior to his time, and now teaching at uh, Missouri Military Academy, instructor of language and philosophy. He also is the author of the Sasquatch Phonetic Alphabet. Hello, Scott. Hello. How are you? All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad we put this together here. Now, um, we've got a lot that we can get through and talk about within the time that we have it here. And I want you guys to feel comfortable because this is going to go down in the digital record for us. We're going to we're recording live and we're going to keep track of this here. So uh, you guys don't do a whole lot of conferences directly together, Ron. It would it be fair to say that you do more conferences alone without Scott. Yeah. OK, be fair. So this is a, a, a good opportunity for you guys to catch up and clear the air because there's a there's a lot going on in the community still, even while we're all in this position of quarantine. But um, to let the audience know, Ron does have a, a presentation that we're going to start off with. Uh, but before we do that, um, I just want uh, you guys to tell the audience a little bit about yourself here. Maybe just give them, give uh, each of you give five minutes of your background to the audience, and then we'll uh, move forward from there. Okay. Why don't you go ahead and start, Scott? Okay. Um, well, uh, the first thing I like to tell everyone when I present my study is that I'm not a Bigfoot guy. I never was a Bigfoot guy. I mean, I grew up in the Rocky Mountains with all kinds of stories. I had uh, Native American friends who had really crazy stories. I always thought that they were just uh, superstitions. So I never was a Bigfoot guy. I'm just a language guy. But one day I was, um, I had my son was up in my classroom at Wentworth College because he didn't have class. He didn't have school that day. And um, he had a project to do for school. And um, it was, this is when Google was brand new to me anyway. And I had my computer open. He says, 
I said, so what do you want to do your, uh, he was supposed to write a paper. And he's a 12 year old boy. So of course, all 12 year old boys want to write a paper on either um, the Loch Ness Monster, UFOs or Bigfoot. I said, well, pick one. So he says, okay, Bigfoot. So I started Googling Bigfoot. And in the middle of that, he says, dad, what do you think Bigfoots sound like? Um, and I, I just remembered some uh, B-grade movie from the 70s, and I let out some little, uh, oh, goofy sound. And, and Stephen says, Dad, that, that's not what Bigfoot sound like. And I said, okay, well, let's Google it. So I literally Googled Bigfoot sounds. And it uh, the first thing it brought me up to um, and I don't know if Ron's website was called that at the time, but what it took me to was the BFRO to a couple of these little clips of um, that, what they called the samurai chatter. And I listened to that, uh, a few of those, a couple of those, and I was dumbfounded because I knew immediately what I was hearing. Um, and my son, I, I was so silent and engrossed in it that my son said, dad, what's wrong with you? And um, was the rest is history, really. Because at that moment, that was the moment immediately that I, I knew those three things is that I was, I was not hearing a human being, that's for sure. And I knew that from pro professional uh, experience of 20 years of listening to the human voice on tape. It was not a human being yet it was speaking a language. And the third thing is I knew it was not fake. After a, so, I mean, my, uh, Stephen says, dad, how do you know that's, how do you know that's, that's a language? It sounds like apes fighting to me. And I said, well, son, we gotta get a hold of those tapes and slow it down like dad used to do in the Navy. And after a, a several days of detective work, I was able to find Ron. And that's uh, <laughs> uh, complicated my life, should we say. Ron? Ditto. <laughs> Actually, my, my history is going to be in the first beginning of the PowerPoint program I got for everybody. I made it especially just for this. And uh, it's it's this has been with me since '71, so I was 29 years old then. And it, it kind of tags on you and stays there, when, especially when you've had the experience that uh, we and me and the other guys had up at that CR camp. But uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, um, Scott and I became friends after that. He came out and interviewed uh, actually Al Berry and myself, an investigative reporter that took up. He wanted to find the context, I think, of the sounds. We gave him copies of the original sounds, and uh, he went back and studied them and uh, claimed that there's a complex language by the human definition of language, which I'll get into in my program, and he probably will too. But what does that mean? It means something very special to me because only humans, according to, I'm going to get my program without him getting into it here, <laughs> but according to Dr. Philip Lieberman in 1968, he said only humans have the capability with the higher bone and the tongue and the way the uh, all of it fits together into the nerves into the brain to have sapient speech like we have 
like we're having right now. And that's, uh, that's kind of compelling because uh, really only humans are supposed to have that. So it kind of mm -hmm. sways me into thinking, especially with all the reports I've, and people I've interviewed, they said they have a very human look to them. So I think they're part human and that's where I'll go with this. But uh, a lot of people want to think they're just an ape in the woods mm -hmm. and that's okay if they want to think that way. They might be right, maybe some of them are. <laughs> but what we dealt with in Sierra Nevada mountains was more than just an ape in the woods. I mean, there was some strangeness went on around them. Okay, well, so let's let's make this abundantly clear that uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that strangeness too, and how it may fit into your journey along the way. Um, really, at this point, we have nothing to lose. We've talked about uh, so much of the behavior, talked about how they look physically, how they interact, but there's all this other stuff that goes way deeper than that. And you've been privy to it. You've talked about it openly with David Polites and his last missing 401 documentary. And um, I, from what I could tell with Scott, you're no stranger to some of the weirdness as well, because there's some stories, really cool stories that I want to get out of you as we go along. But Let's not belabor this moment here. Um, anybody in the audience um, who wants to chime in, feel like you can do so. But Ron, I'd like for you to uh, begin your presentation here. And Scott, along the way, feel like uh, you can join in on the conversation with Ron regarding what he's about to share. But um, unless you guys have anything else you want to add, let's get started. Okay. You ready? Okay. I'm ready. All right. It's, it's all on you right now. <laughs> I'm going to mute myself while you do this. Well, I don't know why that's up there like that, but anyway, let me get into my... Yeah. I don't know what you did, Toby, but uh, we're seeing everything but what we're supposed to be, I think. Well, wait, it takes me a minute, Scott. I'm, I'm not as fast no. as I used to be. <laughs> Right, Scott, you, you'll, you'll see his uh, presentation here shoot up in a second. Oh, okay. Well, there's one. Any comments on that? <laughs> okay. Yep. Well, I'm sure everybody recognized that. Uh, that's the uh, Patterson film from 1967. It's been thoroughly studied, second only to the Kennedy assassination, which here's, here's my situation, Sierra Sounds. All these experts have chimed in here, and uh, Scott being one of them, but Dr. Curlin's report is a professor of electrical engineering at the University of Wyoming, and his 1978 study established the credibility of the original tapes. There was no manipulation. There was within, below, and above the average human range. And you got that. He's a professor. He's written over 200 papers. He's just a, he was renowned, and he's retired now, but... Uh, that seems to be dropped in all this. I doubt if a lot of people have even read the book that where he wrote and published by the University of British Columbia, UBC Press in 1980, when he presented his findings of these sounds at that seminar, that uh, symposium that was up there. And uh, yet it's, it's just kind of overlooked by so much academia. 
They've got the 1996 one, the human sound expert, uh, Nancy Logan. She's a court certified interpreter in several languages. She's, she was at that time a one of only 10 in the whole state of California that was qualified to listen to different languages and, and, and interpret them. And she challenges anyone to be able to duplicate it. She says, and I'll give her a little spill here in a minute, but <clears throat> you can't duplicate this with our human vocal mechanism. And you've got Scott, who we oh. just heard from a minute. Uh, 2008, he retired Navy cryptolinguist, uh, totally vetted, transcribed a complex language, verified these beings have language by the human definition, which is very important. Another little element, which is not uh, verified by academia, but is a uh, thinker thunker. He claims that there's five octaves in one tone. And if that's correct, and I'm trying to get a, a, a some kind of professor someplace to verify this, and I've got a couple looking at it maybe if they don't get scared. Uh, and that's what they do is they get scared of taking on a subject like this. But if that proves out, that should be a smoking gun. I mean, with all this other stuff, you've always got these these experts here. And you've got thousands of eyewitnesses, uh, but most of them are ridiculed by, by media, by the media and academia both. But what, what is it? That, what is an expert? It's one who, <clears throat> with the special skill or knowledge representing the mastery of a particular subject. I gotta say, Professor Curran's an expert, Nancy Logan's an expert, Scott Nelson's an expert. So, why is it that information most ignored by mainstream science? Could they have a fixed paradigm? That's exactly what I think it is. Either that or it's the funding they won't get if they take on a subject matter like this. So, um, anyway, we've got these experts that's already chimed in on these sounds, and it's probably, it's really incredible, but when you get trying to send this to other people. Oh, here's a good one. Uh, they they kind of ridicule it still. Uh, science changes one funeral at a time. <laughs> Anybody like that one? It's Max Planck. He's a Nobel Prize winner for quantum physics in 1918. He, he won that Nobel Prize for quantum physics. So people think quantum physics is something out there in woo-woo land. Well, I hope to tell you it's something different because it's how everything in the universe actually works. Uh, this is when it began for me, it was in 1971. That's when I first heard their chatter. And that's when I began researching giants. And that's a footprint, the first print I ever saw up there, 1971. <clears throat> Anybody got a question, just jump in and break me up because I'm gonna go through this. Uh, we took supplies in and see those barrels there and the mules and that was 1972. And uh, on the trail, and this is a recording captured. By the way, all these recordings are captured at the same spot in the Sierra Nevada Mountain, same camp. Uh, but it's a wilderness area. The following clip was provided by David Pilates. 2018, it's the first professional filming uh, that I ever allowed in the Sierra camp that I ever took there. And it took a little bit of persuading to get me to let somebody go in there. Scott actually came out and seen me, <laughs> I think specifically to try to get me to, to talk to David about allowing him to go in because he wanted to film it because he knew the history of it and he thought it should be documented. Did I say that right, Scott? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Good. Just needed to know if I could hear you. Anyway, this is the trip in. It's only one minute long, uh, the trip, but it's about a five, six hour trip in. So let's watch it. That's okay, Just so people can get some idea, we're not that far outside of Yosemite. We're not far at all. No, I tell people we're between Yosemite and Tahoe, and that's where we are. 
If you leave them 6,000 feet elevation, you hike into close to 10,000 feet before you start dropping back into up and down. The whole topography up here changes. Every year, you don't know what to expect. Uh, you don't know what logs are going to cross the trail that you have to work your way around to get here. There's really no good trails to get here. Uh, and if you don't know where it's at, you'll never find it. It's just one of those places. A lot of people have seen this before, but I'm just going to hurry through some of this and then when I get into the, uh, uh, well, it's all good stuff, I think. <laughs> anyway, I've been to a lot of places researching this phenomenon. And uh, I went into Russia, Siberia, Bolivia, Mexico, Peru, a couple times there too. But an effective researcher does not selectively find reports that fit his or her ideas, does not discredit others, keeps an open mind, listens, and should never be tethered by an ego. That's what I think is, makes us human. Eagles make us human. So I think it's kind of important to watch for that in this whole field because it seems like there's a competition going on. And, and uh, I don't. Uh... Warren Johnson, that was uh, one of the first interactions we had. That was a whistle, which I think Scott has a, well, Scott has all this stuff, but uh, the whistle is done through the vocal mechanism, not through the lips like we do. We whistle through our lips, and uh, these things whistle through the vocal cords. And they have a very expanded vocal mechanism, uh, more so than humans. And uh, we don't actually know what many of these hominids represent. What we do know is that the Sierra Bigfoot we record up there have a complex language. And what is it about language that makes it so important? It's not a whoop, it's not a yell, it's not a scream. Everything communicates with some type of a noise or something, a frequency. But it's sapient talk, that's what language is. And uh, we'll put more about that in a few minutes. But uh, mimicking is not language. I had somebody say, well, Well, that wasn't a minor bird. <laughs> it wasn't a leery bird either. Uh, I had somebody say, well, the birds can mimic. Were these things mimicking? No, they were not mimicking, in my opinion, and I think Scott will verify that, but they were actually talking to each other. And uh, that's kind of what Albert Osman talked about in this uh, book here. This is when I was exploring Toba Inlet, or Albert Osman's story of 1924. I was up there, that's Peter Byrne on the right, Al Berry on the left, uh, when we went into Toba Inlet. That's a little map up there. 
where Osman said he was taken from and kidnapped, held six days. But what he said in that was they chattered amongst themselves. And that's in this book with John Green. And uh, anyway, I thought that's kind of interesting because you hear people saying they were chattering, like we think there's people out there talking somewhere. Well, they are, but what are they? They're not like us, whatever they are. Quick question here, and this is uh, going to maybe interrupt your flow here, but I think there needs to be more questions here as we go along, so I'm just going to ask them. In regards to uh, your story, Ron, uh, the people on here, I assume a lot of them already know it, so they've come locked and loaded with questions. The first one was, in your area at the Sierra Camp, did you ever expand out to other areas to study it, 10 miles out, maybe uh, mark a radius from the center of camp and work outside of it? Yeah. Yes, we did, quite a bit. Uh, yeah, well, the answer is yes, we did. We were looking for signs. We have found signs out away from camp. I interviewed a guy last year, last year I think it was, who hunts about 15 miles as crow flies from where our camp is. And uh, a very credible guy, and uh, sounding very credible, a firefighter. And uh, he'd been hunting that way, and he'd been experiencing the Bigfoot phenomenon for several years, but he thought it's time to get a hold of somebody. So he, he got a hold of me, but he also said that uh, this last time when he had an encounter, he saw a, a UFO hovering over this mountain and a Bigfoot at the same time. So I started looking into that connection, and uh, so I've looked into that for some time now, but I do believe there's a connection there with an alien component to it. and. Uh, uh, that's another story too but yeah we did expand out and we uh, we have found things one time i was out a few miles away with alberry we took our horses into a, a little lake that uh, i'd never been to before it was right around it was across the canyon way across the canyon from where our camp is a couple of canyons actually i thought well what the heck i'll get out here and do a couple of yells i used to have a big yelling bigfoot voice <laughs> i got out there and started doing some yelling went back and sit down by the uh, by the fire where Al was, and and uh, all of a sudden, here it comes. Big chatter. Uh, oh, wow, I got their attention. That surprised me. I didn't think it would, but it did. So I ran over there with my camera right quick. I'm sitting over there by the edge of the cliff where the sound came from, and that was it. No, no picture, no nothing, nothing after that. Just a uh, quick note here, Ron. Can you turn down the audio just a hair on your end with the music? Just so we oh. can hear you a little bit better. That Maybe just be, well, yeah. turn the volume down just a little bit on your, I don't Let's, know if that's a possibility. Let's see if it goes to the next one. Still there? Okay. That's all right. I just wanted to make me, sure that uh, they could hear you. Okay. I'm not sure where I started that. Well, let's go back to the Jane Goodall letter here and see if we can do it without the, uh, the audio so, so big. Okay, there we go. The other question along the way, let me go back here. This may be one for you to chime in on to as well, Scott, regarding what we just heard prior to that, the, the sound file that Ron played with the Sierra sounds. Has anybody come close to recording what Ron has recorded all those years? Uh, no. Over the years, I've received um, dozens, over 100 little snippets and clips of language uh, from researchers. Um, and they fall into several categories. Um, 
most of them are just fake. Most of them, and some of them are obviously attempts by people to uh, trick me up. Uh, in other words, send me something fake and see if I'll say that it's real. Then some of, um, then a, a, another huge block of them that I've received are simply um, just other animals or just other sounds in the forest that, that I can't say that they're not the same being as the Sierra being but I can't say that they are okay, uh, because they, they might fall within this, this, the parameters of a human voice, for instance. Um, and I've have, I've had three or four out of all of them that I believe could be the same type of being as, as the Sierra being. Okay. That's what I, I wanted to ask here. Okay. Ron, sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Okay. It's a letter I wrote to Jane Goodall. She kindly replied in her own handwriting, so I saved it, and uh, kind of glad I did. She's an open-minded person. Thought I'd say that. <laughs> Here's a letter that uh, we wrote about the language or the chattering amongst themselves to Ivan Sanderson, and that was uh, 1971, the winter of 71, when you can't get into the camp any longer in the snow. And uh, Ivan Sanderson, uh, unbeknownst to us, uh, sent it to Peter Byrne. He's saying it very blatantly, it's got to be a hoax because they, they're just an ape in the woods, right? That's all people thought they were. It's all we thought they were too, but there was chattering. We didn't realize the significance of language at that time. But it was a 23-page handwritten letter to Ivan Sanderson, sent it to Peter Byrne. By the way, that's Warren Johnson. He's a guy you heard whistling back and forth with the Bigfoot that was whistling, and that's Alberry on his right. But uh, that's, anyway, that's a picture of Al Berry. We ended up taking him into camp in 1972, and he recorded some sounds and was trying to find the hoax that Peter Byrne thought it was a hoax. Al Berry thought it was a hoax. We didn't know these guys think it was a hoax because we knew what was going on up there. We thought we did. And uh, anyway, it's a... It's a, I like this little state of credible evidence can often be ignored if it doesn't fit within predetermined paradigms. So many people have made up their mind what these things have to be, and they don't open their mind up to the bigger bubble that's going on around the universe instead of the one that's just on the earth here. I just thought of that statement, by the way. <laughs> uh, here's a picture of uh, Al Berry and uh, Peter Byrne. That was Peter Byrne's first trip up in the camp. Nothing happened when they were up there, which is not surprising they these things stay ahead of you but again these guys and according to we we too thought they're just a clever ape in the woods everybody wants to know what what are all these books are about here i got on the sides just ask me and i'll tell you no questions we do I have a question here the, let's uh let's want to build the white space can you hear me ron yeah okay here's a question here um and we'll have you chime in here, Scott, as well. After This is from uh, David Dragason. After studying the pathology and audiology, shouldn't one be able to write the samurai chatter? That's what, that's what I have done. I have that transcribed, is what the, okay. I have transcribed the, the samurai chatter. I have 75 pages of it. Mm -hmm. It's not published. Is that something that can be published and peer-reviewed and put absolutely. out? And Yes, absolutely. It will be published. Um, for a long time, we were waiting for uh, 
some kind of corroborating evidence. But um, a well-known uh, a well-known academic researcher, fellow researcher, made the point to me once. He said, "You've already got, you've already got uh, corroborating evidence." Uh, in because you you got it in two different years, two different uh, times. Mm -hmm. So that's something we've been working uh, working toward. But for a long time, we that's why we mm -hmm. when we presented our study, mm -hmm. the first thing that we would do, and the last thing we would do is is ask all of the the uh, field researchers out there to send me any kind of tapes at all that they thought could have any kind of uh, chatter or even coyotes fighting, uh, because that's what it sounds like to the, uh, mm -hmm. to the average ear. And uh, that's, that's um, what we did over the, the first few years to just collect so many different uh, audio mm -hmm. clips from people sending us everything. And there was an interesting quote yesterday for people that weren't here for the elongated skull conversation that Ron was a part of. One of the questions was about academics not taking the research seriously or just playing on pushing the, the evidence aside. But Brian Forster brought up a good point that if you got to change the culture first, the academics will follow. You don't need their approval. You have to get to your audience. And um, that's what we hope to do here. I mean, academics may be tuning in. I hope they are. But all in all, it takes the people in the audience to push the culture here. Um, someone right. else wrote, uh, well, real quick, there's a book down here, Ron, in the lower left-hand corner called Ishi. Is yeah. that right? Ishi. Yeah, someone said they really appreciate you putting that up. Oh, good. Yeah, he's, that's a pretty interesting story. Uh, Anyway, I don't know if you want me to read it to you or not. <laughs> uh, no, one more question. Uh, he was, he was east of uh, east of Chico in California in the mountains there, and he was one of the last yeah. remaining of the, of the tribe. Uh, Keith Lentz has a question for you too, Ron, as we're going forward here. Do you think Bigfoot can mimic animals? And if so, how has this been witnessed? How has this been observed? Do you believe they can mimic owls in particular? <laughs> yes. Certainly. Uh, they have such an expanded vocal mechanism, or compared to ours anyway, they, I think they can make any sound they want to. And there was one time, you may be referring to the one I've talked about, and that's when my daughter Rhonda and I were at camp, just the two of us, and I heard what I thought was an owl up the canyon a little ways, and uh, uh, behind those uh, uh, birch trees, Scott, uh, right up there by those rocks. And uh, I uh, started to turn my little recorder, my handheld recorder on, and uh, the speaker switch was on, it made a squeal, and that uh, owl sound turned into a Bigfoot chatter. And uh, that just, that told me right there, well, there's sound like an owl. <laughs> but what gives them away a lot, like we, now it was up the canyons that could have, uh, it was really loud, I thought, for a, an owl, but then it could have been echoing down the canyon a little bit. Um, so what gives them away is their aptitude. I think they, they're really uh, huge voices. And it'll jar you when you're when they're next to you and start doing something like that. But yes, they can mimic. I believe uh, they do mimic. It may be a hunting tool, it might be a evasive tool, whatever. But uh, they they can do it, in my opinion. And my opinion is good. That, that's what counts right now. Okay, uh, next slide, Ron. We're ready. Okay, this is Alberry, and so, but uh, cognitive dissonance. It's mental. 
conflict that occurs when beliefs or assumptions are contradicted by new information. A lot of people are in that right now. And uh, that was coined by this uh, passenger, Leon Pesce, 1957, that term. But uh, people have made up their mind and when something else comes to them like this, and that's what Alberry ran into. He had several attempts trying to try to solicit someone by a scientist to either credit or discredit the recordings. He didn't care. He just wanted it solved one way or the other, whichever way it was. And it wasn't until he ran into uh, Professor Curland, University of Wyoming, that he got some uh, some good information, that unbiased information, a year-long study, which I'll talk about in a minute. But that wasn't his first. He went all over. He got laughed at in a lot of places. And made fun of <laughs> His, uh, her first connection, he thought, well, I'll go right at the top of the realm here. He went to the syntonics research in New York City. These are people that uh, studied the Nixon Watergate tapes. I'm sure a lot of people remember that. If you're, kind of, if you're over 20 years old, you might remember it. <laughs> no, 40 years. How long? Never mind. But they said, just in a quick analysis of it, which they didn't do a full study, but the sounds were spontaneous, taken at the time of the recordings. There was no 60-cycle hum, which would have shown pre-recording or re-recording in her studio. And they were too powerful to have been human-made. And that's a, a, a Ivy Teibel, president of Syntonic Research, who studied the Nixon tapes. So that was a pretty good hit, but this still wasn't. They recommended that he find somebody, just like he found Dr. Curlin. Anyway, the complete uh, back and forth of, of that deal with Teibel is in this book right here, which Albury co-wrote with Ann Slate. And if you've got that book, you look in Appendix B in the back of it, and he goes through well, pretty much word by word the conversation he had with uh, Tybal. Uh, but this is Curlin's, and anybody's seen my presentation before, I always play this one because it has some pretty unique features in it. We're still talking about language here because that's so important to me that these things have a language. Uh, they have to be part human if they got language. They got, at least they got that human DNA in them. Uh, I'll let you listen to this, but uh, Curlin's report, you see this box right here. Can you see my mouse? You bet. Okay, good. That's the average human range. And this little bit we're gonna play for right here is in Curlin's report, which is in Man Like Monsters on Trial, the UBC Press and British Columbia. Uh, you'll hear these sounds here, which represent grr, the grr sound. You'll hear the sounds here. Look for the sound muy tail, this is zero here little icon in there that's inside the human range and it sounds very human-like when he says this mutau you hear this at the end so i'll play it again if you want me to do you hear the mutau yeah that's uh that's i think very interesting because that sounds sound human-like is in the human range. However, note they can go outside the human range, above and below, and a whole lot more. If I wants to hear it again, I'll play it again. Okay. Now, uh, there's another professor, Dr. Benson, professor of diagnostic sciences at Texas A&M, who listened to this 
just a quick listen again he was too busy to do a study i asked him to but he wouldn't just because i wanted somebody else to chime in on it too uh, he suggested an animal eight foot five inches tall made that sound and uh, i thought that was kind of interesting Anyway, all this is in not Vincent's report, but Dr. Curlin's report is in this Man Like Monsters on Trial, which probably could still be obtained uh, by his, his made in Canada. And there was uh, his whole several page reports in here. And uh, Nancy Logan, she's a human sound expert, and she's the one that, uh, of course, certified in California was. And she said, who or whatever made these noises has a voice pitch range that is considerably more flexible than that of Homo sapiens sapiens. It goes much lower and much higher. I thought that was kind of interesting because it does. Now, I have a speculation. I speculate that could Bigfoot have more than two vocal cords, given their very unusual vocal abilities? Don't know. But I suspect they might have because uh, they can do some really interesting sounds that are outside of what we can even probably hear. Uh, oh, look at that guy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, before we get to uh, talking about that guy there, a question for both of you here. Uh, next question from Keith. Uh, different languages from different areas. Are there any examples of a different language outside of the Sierras or you know, out of Sierra proper exhibiting different languages? Uh, Ron, Scott? Uh, I can answer that, Ron. Uh, we don't have any any example outside of the Sierras of uh, of anything like this that that we could legitimately say is uh, uh, utter, uh, producing utterances of a linguistic nature. We just don't have it. We, we don't have any recordings. I have not received any recordings outside of the Sierra area area that would um, um, be evidence of language. Now that doesn't mean that they don't have a language. It just means that they, people have not been lucky enough to, to record them. Also, I think if I could add something to that, Scott looks for something that's outside the human range also. Correct, Scott? Uh, if it, oh yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, because if it's outside the human range, that really grabs, grabs the attention of, of people who want to study it because humans aren't doing it <laughs> and so if there's a morphine stream of words which i'll get into i'm sure but uh, it's it just uh it, it just suggests not suggests but it determines the language um scott was vetted by the defense language institute he was a two-time graduate of this and, uh, just in case he don't tell you i'm going to tell you <laughs> there's not too many men qualified on this planet that can do what he did in fact, he says there's only one that he knows of, and that was his instructor. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I, I think that was kind of what, the importance of language and how it relates to Bigfoot research. Okay, I've kind of given that away a little bit, but only humans have the vocal tract capable of language. No other primate has this. That's according to Philip Lieberman. He's a linguistic scientist at Brown University. He made that statement in 1968. So that right there throws a lot of academia away because they say, well, nothing else can do it. And these aren't humans, so they've got their mind made up. Uh, all community sounds are vibrations and frequencies, but cognitive vibes represent a higher level of consciousness. I like that one. Uh, language requires a special connection to the higher bone. It works in unison with the larynx and the tongue. Only humans have this, according to Dr. Lieberman. But 
I gotta tell you, Bigfoot has it. Sound waves, when amplified to a high enough frequency, would turn into visible light. That's science. Now, that's kind of unusual for most people to handle, but because there are sounds, if they can get high enough, they will go out of frequency and into light. That's kind of interesting, I think. Anybody else think that's interesting? Raise your hand. Yeah, there's some hands <laughs> raised here. There's a question here from Jay. How close do you think they got to the microphones at the Sierra camp? Was there any examples of them actually touching the mic head, flipping the tape recorder around, things like that? No, there wasn't. Uh, no evidence. Now, my mics, what I had, of course, I lost my tapes in a house fire, unfortunately, because they were primo. I had the best sound equipment you could get and still carry it on a, in a mule with, with battery-controlled cassette. Stereo, two microphones on each side of the uh, shelter sticking out. There's times when I could listen to them walking right outside the shelter. You hear the sound uh, going around in stereo. And uh, I got one of those sounds between Alberry's tapes where they make a sound and then and then over here, all of a sudden, if you're a little bit of silence and you hear another sound over here, well, I amplified that at really high in my SoundForge program. and. I could hear the steps going from one place to another. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, but they were within, oh gosh, sometimes just a few feet of our shelter. Uh, now on this, some of these recordings I'm playing are from Al Berry's uh, recordings because he had very clear ones. And those are the ones that were sent off to, uh, to Curlin too, to study. And uh, his microphone that night of that recording was, uh, remoted about 40 feet up from our shelter on a little pine tree and it was wired which didn't have wireless in those days and uh, anyway the stereo mic that he had was turned vertical so we found out in the studio when I was publishing or presenting this uh, in a studio that the mic was was vertical instead of horizontal and that's why we didn't get a sound we couldn't tell where it was coming from later if we if we'd known that we could have done something different but that's how we found out it was mounted vertically on that tree. Uh, let's get into infrasound and ultrasound unless somebody has a question. Because there's times when I think we were affected by infrasound up there. And it does affect humans. This is science. It's not some woo-woo something. But it's below uh, the human ability to hear. And uh, it will affect us. It was used in the Second World War by Hitler, actually, to control crowds. But it's a sound that elephants use. It's a sound that uh, large tigers use. Uh, giraffes use it. There's a whole institute uh, that studies infrasound and how infrasound is transferred. Because it goes right through things. It, it'll travel for miles. And uh, that's how animals can uh, connect with each other when they're a long way apart. An ultrasound, though, it's it's higher. That's what your dog whistles are and all that stuff. It's also a lot of uh, medical devices are used in ultrasound. The human frequency is between 20 and 20,000 hertz. And, uh, see the little graph at the bottom down there? You see the blue? That's where we are, right there. And uh, then you get on a whip in here. And uh, all kinds of sounds that we don't hear, but we can be affected by them. Same with our vision, which I won't get into that because this is about sound today, how important I think language is. Why is it important in Bigfoot research? Because the more you understand, the easier it is to understand more. I thought that was kind of cute. Anyway, that's me and uh, yesterday. Come on, that's 
further along than yesterday. That was 1972. And that's my sagittal crest on top of that hat. <clears throat> Keeps the heat in. The snow, you notice the snow around there. We cast that track. And, uh, I'm going to play a couple things. But what is it that makes a language by the human definition of language? According to Scott, and you can talk more about this in a little bit, but it's a morphine stream. Words that make up a sapia sentence. That's the answer. I'm going to play two. One is display only. This is kind of some of the first sounds we heard up there, which is a little bit spooky for some people. And then the next one will be language between two of them. And this one uh, represents language. Well, there you are. That's, um, again, we don't know what they were saying. Scott can't tell you what they were saying, but we do know it was a language that communicated between themselves. We don't know, didn't know at the time, if they was arguing about coming and eating us or if they was going to uh, just arguing over who's going to get the food we left out or maybe we were going to be the food. We don't know. Maybe we never will know, but uh, kind of exciting times, that's for sure. And that is, a see that on my hip right there? That's a big gun. We all have guns, so... People say, don't take guns with you. I think that's silly. There's all kinds of things out there body besides these things. And I'm not sure these things would, but I don't think they're allowed really should, shouldn't be interfering with, with us uh, humans. And Ron, we should, we should mention too, that the size of that cast, what size of footprint again is that? That's 19 and a half inches. Right. And you still have that cast in your possession? Or I a, do. Yeah. Uh, it's all packed in styrofoam. I got a copy of it that I'll take around with me. I have a That's quick question too from uh, David Mabain. He wants to know: um, Is there any evidence that they can understand English through studying the language, Scott and Ron? Um, they simply answering questions that we couldn't understand with fulling, uh, knowing full well what the uh, statements were from Ron. Well, can I shoot it first, Scott? Sure, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. <clears throat> well, in my book, Quantum Bigfoot, I think they they can. They can get into the vibration where your head is and they can, what some people call mind speak. In quantum language, it's called uh, quantum entanglement. And uh, can they understand what you're saying? They can understand your intent, I think, and what you're trying to put out. I don't know if they know the words, but uh, Scott could address that. Who knows? Until they come in and say, ooga, ooga, there's a tree and point to a tree. You don't know that ooga, ooga means a tree. So there. Scott, you're up. Your turn. Well, um, in the Barry Moorhead tapes, there are uh, numerous um, examples of what we would call cognatic uh, expressions or, or words that would fit in the right place to be cognates, meaning words that would be the same in their language as it would be in ours. Uh, for instance, the word no. Um, we did a study on the... Uh, um, the frequency count. Linguists have to do this. We, we do a lingu uh, 
frequency counts on the morphemes, uh, which means syllables. And um, uh, the frequency count in, in human languages, the most frequent morpheme that all human languages speak is the word no, unfortunately, way more common than the word yes. And the frequency count of these Sierra beings, um, also the very, uh, the very top morpheme, the most common morpheme of all of the utterances that we captured uh, is no. This gives us some correlation to human languages. There are also a lot of things that, um, that people hear when they listen to the tapes and they, and they think, oh my gosh, that sounds like English. That sounds like they're saying this, whatever. Uh, but um, that gets too close to what we would call para, paradolia, which is a, the thing, it's, it's what, ha what humans do uh, mentally when they hear something of a completely random nature, we naturally try to um, make sense out of it. We try to um, pick pieces out of it that would make sense to us. And therefore, we would naturally hear things that, would, that we would equate with English. Now, the, um, the interesting thing about that is, is I have had native speakers from all over the world listen to these tapes, and they all do the same thing. In fact, one of the first people I ever had listened to it was my very good friend, uh, Jerry Masuda, native Japanese speaker. And the reason I had him listen to it um, was, was because it, was, it does sound Japanese. It sounded like the, the old samurai movies, um, the old samurai TV series. And uh, because of the, the very emphatic staccato uh, in which it's uttered. And uh, he found things right away. He said, Scott, that sounds, that sounds like a very ancient form of Japanese, but I can't understand a thing. I can't understand a word of it. And I have found that with Persian speakers, with Russian speakers, with uh, Native American speakers, anyone that listens to it, they can pick out bits and pieces that seem familiar to them. But we know uh, psycholinguistically that that is just a natural thing that we humans do. So we have to document those, those possible cognates, but we can't, put much, we can't put much stock into them. However, it would make sense if these creatures are as observant as we think they are, um, and if their safety depends so much on the avoidance of humans, it would make sense that they would learn as much of our language as possible. And uh, we have to face it, uh, how long has English been the dominant language on this, this uh, continent? 400 years, over 400 years. How long before that, how long was the Spanish language dominant on this continent of uh, 500 years. And then, then we have to think about, you know, the Native American languages. And we can't pick one out. There are over 600 different Native American languages. So it's be very, very difficult to say, hey, there, here's some Cherokee uh, words. Here's some Shoshone words. But uh, it would make sense 
that uh, these beings would make every effort to learn as much of our language as they could. Awesome answer. Um, real quick here too, uh, regarding uh, looking into old languages, Scott, is there any evidence that these words are showing up or these phrases, these phonemes or cognates showing up in what are considered dead languages like Sumerian or anything like that? Uh, I have, uh, no, but I have to qualify that because there's an ancient language that I speak and I've spoken out there uh, with Ron many times, the Avestan language. Um, and I can give you a taste of it. Well, this is Persian. But there's uh, I have taken these very, very ancient languages and, uh, you know, I will go up, when we're up there, I'll go out on a rock, on one of these tall rocks, where we think that many of these, uh, uh, many of these uh, articulations were coming from. I'll stand up on top of those and shout these out in every language that I can think of, every language that I know, Russian, Spanish, Persian, English. I'll sing old sea ditties, you know, from my Navy days. But... Um, and we've tried everything, and once in a while we'll get uh, a little bit of a response, but nothing that we could call linguistic. The Navy Sea Ditties are usually not PG rated, so I wonder <laughs> what kind of responses you're getting. <laughs> okay, go ahead, uh, Ron. Okay, this is three years after our initial contact. We've <laughs> this year at camp. That's me on the left again with uh, Lewis Johnson and Bill McDowell. And um, Scott seems to think that they slowed the vocalizations down on this uh, tape to communicate. Okay, well, that was a little fun time I had that night, 74. Uh, having language by the human definition implies sapience. Only humans are supposed to be homo sapiens sapiens, right? Sapiens attribute to humans only. I think this is significant because it should uh, tell some of these would-be researchers out there that they're not looking for just an apron around the woods and how come they're not finding them. I got that in my quantum book also. Here's a quote by Dr. Edgar Mitchell. There's no unnatural or supernatural phenomena, only very large gaps in our knowledge of what is natural. We should strive to fill those gaps of ignorance. I encourage everybody to memorize that one. Because <laughs> uh, really, I don't call anything uh, paranormal or woo-woo or nothing. It's just quantum science. Oh, there's a good picture, Scott. Recognize that horse, Scott? Oh, boy, I remember that day. <laughs> yeah, that was quite a day, wasn't it? That was a... <laughs> A difficult day. Uh, for me. For you. <laughs> that was a day I think I broke a rib or something, couldn't get off the mountain very well. And oh. Scott uh, nursed me back to the camp where my daughter was. And, no, uh, he's, he's playing it down. I saved his life, and he fully credits me with doing that. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
we got to talk uh, more in depth about this day too. So as we go <clears throat> along here, I, I want to dive into that photograph and what happened before and after that. But uh, okay, you know, that was quite a night. My daughter saw her Bigfoot down at the camp where we she where she was, which is a few miles away from where the Sierra camp is. But this is down off the mountain, and after we got down, which was a tough day for me. Uh, but uh, here's a little, remember that trackway, Scott? My what daughter had saw one of these that morning. My daughter's the one that read, Rhonda. And that's Wendy, my granddaughter. And she was walking a trail maybe 100 yards different than where my daughter saw this thing run across. She said, oh, Wendy's going to see this thing. It's heading right for her. And uh, we asked Wendy when she got back if uh, she saw anything. And she said, yeah, there's a big white wolf. Came right out in front of me running. They stopped, looked right at me, and then ran up the hill. Well, that gets into Skinwalker stuff. And so that's a little freaky. But here's the one. Here's the track trail right here. Everybody see that? Something heavy made that. That's Scott trying to make an indention in the ground. You see how deep those tracks went. Whatever it was, was very heavy. And it just stopped right here. That's what they're all looking at. Where'd it go? Where'd it go? Well, we look up in the trees. We look, where could it have jumped to? Couldn't find where it went. Well, is there is there anything that answers that? And yes, I do think there is. I hear it for years and years. I've heard about how trackways just disappear. And all of a sudden, you got the researcher looking into it. And he says, well, it's a hoax. It's ridiculous. You know, it's what is just some UFO pick it up and take it off? Well, maybe so. But I think there's another reason. I think it's called density. I think they lose their density because they're able to transfer their mass into energy. And there's pictures of that stuff happening in different researchers. And uh, anyway, I'm, I'm looking at another one right now from Jay's uh, video, actually, which I don't know if it's smoke yet, but I'll uh, find out. But uh, there's other reports of this. It's pixelated look when they see them, their energy moving. You can see the, the plasma uh, energy. Uh, sometimes if the temperature's right, you can see it. And in this uh, film that I was in with David Pilates, the, the Hunted, Missing 411, The Hunted, uh, he gives about a 15-minute section of me in there. But right after that, there's a really good part that talks about this uh, this lady who was a tree. She was up in a tree hunting, waiting for the deer. And she's seen this movement from tree to tree. And it looked like an energy pattern. They call it the predator look because that's what it appears like, this pixelated type of floating from one tree to another. And uh, anyway, I think it's energy. I think these things, according to Native American lore, too, they go in and out of trees. They uh, live in two worlds. What does all that mean? If they're energy, and we all are at the most minute level of our existence, we are energy, all of us. According to Stephen Hawkins, according to Einstein, all of this says energy cannot die. It only changes form. So what are they doing? What's going on? Could it be? I, Ron, I don't want you to pass by these track photos here as well either because not only are they super deep, <clears throat> they seem to be cutting in almost at a 90-degree angle. And when you're in spongy terraform like that, it's very difficult to cut through at a 90-degree angle. I mean, you would you would fan out as the pressure goes down in volume from step to step. So these are much, much deeper than Scott's. Not only is the stride bigger. By the way, what is the, the stride between heel to heel? Uh, I don't know. I was certain there's some broken rib right then. Like we got the picture. <laughs> yeah. All I know is that it, it was way beyond what I could what I could produce. And uh, that's me. That's a picture of my feet, my legs right there. 
I was trying to stretch as far as I could, and I wasn't getting close to them, at plus the fact that my weight wasn't even denting, uh, you know, the, uh, the soil at all. Not, not even a quarter of an inch, let alone four inches like this. No, you'd almost have to have some kind of apparatus pushed down on you to cut through the ground like that because, you know, the needles aren't just slowly sloping down into the print to cut through like that. They're kind of oh, stabbed yeah. down into the ground. Yeah, I don't, know it, I don't know what it was, because, but it did. It was went right through the force, and then it stopped. And I used to just write those people off when they told me that they disappeared. Uh, a lot of researchers will. But when it happens to you, and especially after a sighting like that, and you find the trackway, uh, come on, what's the answer to it? It's got to be an answer. We have to close these gaps of ignorance. <laughs> and I think we got to look into quantum physics to, to understand some of this stuff, because it's how everything in the universe works. And uh, unfortunately, so many researchers are still looking to just uh, Newtonian physics to answer everything, and that's all predictable, measurable, and... Uh, just not the way things really are. And here's one from Nikola Tesla. I like this guy. The day science begins to study non-physical phenomena, it will make more progress in one decade than in all the previous centuries of its existence. Got to digest that one for a minute because I think we're in that right now. Let's talk a little bit about Nikola Tesla for a second here regarding Henry Franzoni's work. One of the statements he made to us, Ron, was about the trackway. And we'll go uh, just back here and talk just a second about Tesla and the trackways. His theory was that tracks are usually way too shallow or way too deep for what, what the actual being was doing. And his theory was that there was some kind of vibrational shift happening when these tracks were made, it wasn't just pressure, applied pressure to substrate. There was something else vibrationally going on at a molecular level. Did you see anything like that when you're up there? Uh, uh, well, no, 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 I didn't. But everything is a vibration, vibrational frequency. And even Tesla says, well, one man calls God, another man calls the laws of physics. Well, if you want to understand the secrets of the universe, he's just think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. Well, yeah, they vibrate. We're all vibrating in different frequencies, but these things are vibrating. If it would change its vibration from one step to another, for some reason, it would uh, show a difference in the trackway, maybe. But when it totally goes out of your perception, out of making a track, I think it's got to do with their vibrational frequency changed to such a level so high that it just, uh, well, it goes out of our perception, turns into energy. But somehow they can get back into mass and that's quite that's quite a statement to say and uh, if everything is energy and if these things have learned how to manipulate that or know how because of some dna manipulation into whatever some <laughs> some alien did because I, I do believe there's an alien component to these things and that's what gives them their humanistic attributes uh quantum physics and spirituality are the same and a lot of people will call these different dimensions in quantum physics, they call it dimensions, but spirituality, they'll call them heavens or heaven. So really, I don't think there should be a gap between religion. You can't discard religion because you don't like spirituality. You can't discard spirituality because you don't like some religions. That's a better way to put it. 
what many call the paranormal, the supernatural, a miracle, the woo, God's laws governing everything, I call it quantum physics. And I just said this, but you can't discard spirituality because you don't like some religions. We are all spiritual beings, whether you like it or not. Our energy has to go somewhere. We are inside of us a certain energy. We have to respond to things. We have to, uh, we, we're going to run across problems and situations in this life that we have to respond to. And these things aren't supposed to interfere, I don't think. We have choices. Everybody does. And uh, anyway, I, I get a little deeper into that as we get into a regular program. But this is just about the end of mine, I think. Uh, this is my book that I've uh, written called The Quantum Bigfoot. I get into a lot of this stuff, exploring the attributes of physics through physics. Reconnecting quantum entanglement, our three-D reception of reality, because we live in a three-dimensional world. <clears throat> Everybody probably understands that, but there's more dimensions existing that we just don't see or perceive with our eyes. Uh, you can receive it, though, if you learn how to relax and get into your third eye. This is all idealistic talking here, but vibrations and frequencies and energies, the importance of language, the pina vine, the third eye, I think that's very important. Ancient texts, the biblical perspective, all this stuff, and professional findings, there's a lot more. This is my uh, first book I came out with. It gives my chronicle of 40 years of doing this, and that's uh, one of our trips going out. Uh, this comes with vocalization links or a CD, depends on how you want to get it. You can get it either way. And uh, you want the one from the color version with a CD in it, uh, you have to order it off my website, ronmoorhead.com. So anyway, that kind of does it for me. Oh, I have sold in a million copies of these. It's supposed to be funny. I don't see how many people laugh. I don't hear anybody laughing. There you are. Is that you laughing, Toby? That's good. These are what you call dad jokes, by the way, Ron. But <laughs> this is my, uh, so I can stop sharing now. Uh, this is the end. The end. Sure. A question here for Scott while you end your sharing. Um, and thanks for showing those slides. Scott, a question from Thomas Potter. Do you analyze the frequency ranges of the sounds as well? If you do... Scott has a couple recordings he'd like to send your way, and I suppose this will come up as we go forward to here. Um, first of all, do you look at frequencies and uh, tell us what you see? Uh, I'll tell you why. I'm not a sound expert. I'm a language guy. Again, I'm a language expert. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a linguistics specialist. Uh, linguistics specialists are scientists, uh, and a lot of people... Um, uh, misunderstand that because both of us are referred to as linguists. However, linguistics specialists, you can be a PhD and not speak a word of a foreign language, not understand that at all. Linguistics specialists are those who, who can tell you just exactly how does the tracheal tree um, create this particular sound in relation to where the tongue and the teeth are and the vocal cavity and blah, blah, blah. That's not what I do. Uh, I'm a language specialist, not a linguistics specialist. Okay. Also, I'm not, therefore, I'm, I've never claimed to be a scientist. Um, I'm an artist, <laughs> you might say, because language is an art, whereas the science of linguistics is a science. Mm -hmm. um, 
also, I'm not a I'm not a sound specialist, not an expert on sound frequency, but I can certainly tell you when I put on the headphones and I hear uh, vocalizations, I can certainly tell you from uh, many, many years of professional experience whether or not this could possibly be within the human range or not. Not hooking up any kind of spectrometers or graphic machines of any sort. By the way, Thomas, was it? Um, yes. I, I would love for you to send me whatever you have. If it's got audio on it, I would love for you to send it to Ron, who will send it to me. Especially if it has anything what we uh, like what we call a morpheme stream in linguistics, something that sounds like what we would call a sentence, not just the hoops and the grunts and the snarls and the growls, something that actually sounds, for instance, like coyotes fighting or apes fighting mm -hmm. that that. The, that is really our holy grail. If I could get, gosh, if I could get two or three minutes of anything that actually sounds like apes fighting, and if I can slow it down mm -hmm. and analyze it and transcribe it, get it on paper, that is, that is the perfect holy grail of the duplication of evidence that we have been looking for for 10 years now. And how do they reach out to you if they want to send you an MP3? Uh, I would say send it to Ron first. Send it to Ron first. I mean, um, only because if you send it to my, uh, yeah, just send it to Ron first because he he knows what I'm looking for. <laughs> Ron's got a smile. <laughs> yeah, well, I know what they're saying. I get this stuff really a lot often, Scott. You don't know how many times I get people wanting me to tell them this hoop was a Bigfoot. It's looking for some kind of vindication or something because yes. they might have seen something or they know they're in Bigfoot company or something. Mm -hmm. And it might have been a Bigfoot, but it's not what you're looking for. And I know what Scott's looking for. He's looking for the morphine stream of words. Uh, but there is a guy who checks the frequencies out. He's part of the Olympic project, which I'm involved in also. His name is Dave Ellis, and he can be contacted uh, through probably Facebook. Mm -hmm. uh, and he will see the frequency of it and see how it compares because he's got a log of what coyote sounds like, what owl sounds like, what different things sound like. He compares it to see if the frequency is the same because it might sound like that, but different frequency. Mm -hmm. So Dave Ellis would, is a good good, uh, good man to get a hold of for that kind right, of And you can just find him on Facebook and he's pretty good about answering. He is. Yeah, he, he, he loves what he's doing and he right. helps people out a lot like that. So... But uh, I can give you all that information too, because I got a guy I've got to respond to now. That just contacted me this morning, want me to hear his sounds. And you know, I'm not a. All I can do is I know what Scott's looking for, and I'll respond to him the best I can. But I'll turn him over to Dave Ellis if uh, if he's just looking for what frequency it is, or if how it compares to a coyote, or if it's a yell or a scream. Because what we're talking about is language here. We're not talking about some animal sound, but then these things can sound like an animal. What gives them away again is their aptitude. It's a different level of, uh, mm -hmm. of aptitude. Now, Scott, one of the things that Dave always mentions is this percussive huff or percussive quality within the morphine stream. 
And that seems to really trigger him into a whole different conversation with who's ever sending him the audio file. Dave, uh, have you find that? Found that? Yes. Oh, well, if he gets this, uh, this, this is what I've called it uh, a terminal expression. This is uh, this is all over in the uh, Barry Moorhead tapes, um, and it's almost always at the end when uh, when the when the being I don't like calling them creatures um, when the being has uh, uttered a a long morpheme stream, and then at the very end he'll go off and or he'll he'll go or. There'll be a snarl or a little uh, um, a little growl along with a mm. And uh, I've called this, many human uh, languages have this. Uh, for instance, Chinese, it's, it's, um, has a terminal expression that is kind of like saying, all right, I'm done saying what I was gonna say and now it's your turn to speak. It's almost like C, us, uh, you know, CB guys Truckers yeah. talk to each other and they'll say, over. 10-4 rubber, Doc. 10-4, yeah, it's almost like that. I, I, and I, and um, in all of the conversational turns that are on the Barry Moorhead tapes between mm -hmm. the female and the male, they all have that. Right at the end, there'll be a morphine stream, very clear. Uh, uh, and you'll hear that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if Dave's got anything like that, if it's preceded by a little uh, morphine stream, then I want to hear it. Okay, noted. Uh, let's get into it, Scott. I mean, you have a, a full system here, just so the audience knows. Um, he has a computer dedicated to a sound file, and we're going to uh, turn on his sound file here and let you take it away. Okay. Well, I'm going to let me get it, get it going here. Uh, it went to sleep on us. It won't take me long. Let's see. That's okay. Uh, uh, while you're getting that set up there, uh, Ron, any indication of why, after all this time, the Sierra Camps was so successful at getting sounds? I'm sure you get that question all the time, but. Uh, just looking at things like synchronicity and you as a person and where you were and maybe the geology and the, the group that was up there. Why, why you? Good question. I don't know. <laughs> I have a, I also, I have a theory on that. Okay. And go it's, ahead. Again, I was, I was not up there at those times. I've been up there with Ron when we've had some very, very strange things, but I have, having listened to all of the 90 minutes of tape that I have, um, I have a theory that uh, what Ron and Al had run into was what I have called a perfect storm. You have a group of hunters that had been up there year after year after year. They're carrying guns. They're shooting deer. They're leaving carcasses out. They're leaving a deer guts lay around all over the place after they gut the deers. The uh, Sasquatch apparently considered deer guts a delicacy, from what I understand. Um, so the Sasquatch 
knew that these that these uh, humans, these hairless apes, were going to be up there, and they knew that they were not uh, going to shoot at them. Um, so they didn't fear them. Um, <clears throat> at the same time, they had to be wary of them. And in uh, Barry's Al Barry's tape, there's a a a very big part in which I will play for you. Ron played part of it, but I can show you what it looks like on the, I mean, on the transcription uh, uh, thing. <laughs> um, but uh, I, think, I think the creatures knew that they could not scare these humans away. In the first place, if any of the humans had gotten scared, there was only one place to run, and that was off the nearest cliff. <laughs> and none of the humans were going to do that. So I think that what, again, my theory is that you had cre the, the Sierra beings and the hunters there in a, uh, a, a it, the area is not that big. So they were... Uh, held together there by uh, the natural topography of the place and the fact that the Sasquatches were not going anywhere and the human beings were not going anywhere and they just sort of had to deal with each other. And I think it was just a perfect storm where Ron and Al happened to luck out and be lucky enough to, to get this stuff on tape. That's my theory. Could be just luck, yeah. Or who knows, maybe they had a reason for me coming out with it like I've been doing the last few years to let public know that these things aren't just an ape in the woods, that there's more to them than that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a whole lot more going on in the big picture than most of us want to realize. I mentioned the other day that we have a tendency to think we're in this little bubble of 50 to 80 years old or something like that, and that's all there is to anything. There's a whole billions of years out there that we We've got to think about eons of time when these things could have evolved differently. And when aliens have been on this earth, we know that and get into all this stuff and sort of look at the bigger picture, what's really going on and uh, what, what we think is going on anyway. Aliens have been here. I've seen the evidence of them all over and uh, they, they're probably here now. <laughs> People are seeing UFOs all the time. Like there's a bunch of them seen just yesterday, last night, uh, according to what I'm reading. And uh, anyway, uh, I think they're going to come out and expose themselves here before too long, and we'll know a lot more. But there's a reason these things are staying so hidden, and so how they do that is is uh, one of my theories. I got a theory about that too. So I think it's mass to energy and energy to mass. Hey, uh, real quick here, uh, Scott. I also have the uh, emails you sent me with the attachments. So if you need to refer to anything on the screen, I can throw it up for you. Just let me know. Uh, out of the three attachments, which one you'd like to see, and I can have that ready for the audience to look at. Well, after I after I play some of these, um, uh, the transcription program, mm -hmm. and that's really the only difference between what Ron has already played. Uh, much of those clips are going to be the same. Is I I can show you the methodology of what crypto linguists are trained to do. Um, uh, and th then you might. Uh, flash up the uh that 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 little uh 
a sampling of the of what the transcripts look like. I will do that. That might be interesting to yeah, people. Yeah, you should let me know and I'll get it ready for like. you. Um, but you can do that after I play a little bit of this. Uh, uh, okay. One thing I would like to qualify, one thing that Ron said that I would like to qualify is, I never say that I'm the only guy that could do this, Ron. <laughs> I said that. Uh, now, yeah, I mean. No, I didn't say you're the only guy, Scott. I said, I said you're one of the only guys. That, I didn't know you guys existed, really. To, yeah. But, uh, you might well, tell them about your time in Panama, too. <laughs> no, sorry. That Well, it's... Yes, we have to say that, that the skills that we are that we are trained in, um, first off, to be accepted into that program, you have to pass a test that uh, that um, tells tells you the your natural ability for learning languages, and it's it's believed that actually this test was developed by the U.S. Navy many many years ago. Uh, before my time, and it is still used to this day uh, before we before any person is taken into any language program, they have to pass what's called the defense language aptitude battery. And we know that only 10% uh, uh, of those people that take that test are able to pass it. And, um, and from that, it is believed that there is a, about 10% of the human population that has this, you know, that it's a lot of us linguists call it the language gene, but it's, we really don't know, but it's, it's something that allows us to assimilate languages much easier than the average person. Um, and this test is what is required in order to get into any of those fields, even to this day. Um, but anyway, so <laughs> you could say that people that were trained in what I was trained in are rare, uh, but certainly there would be more people out there that could do it if they were willing to and knew about the project. Um, and one of the things I do tell Ron is, is that uh, I, I don't know anyone uh, that has listened more than myself to the human voice on tape, um, except it, it might be the guy who trained me. His name is Ralph Blessing. I had the opportunity to uh, play these tapes for him when Ron and I did uh, presented this study uh, down in Atlanta, Georgia, a few years back. And he was as dumbfounded as I was. Of course, he's got a life of his own. He's married and got, you know, family and a job and so that gets in the way of a lot of uh the ability to to spend a lot of time on this stuff um but he he got off he took those headphones off what we in the navy called the cans and he took one look at me and said to say he says he said the same thing that i said to my son the first moment i heard them he says scott there's language there and I had not even slowed it down for him yet. And as I play this, and the reason I like to play this and show you the transcription program is this is the methodology that we are trained in. Right? And in fact, at the time when Ralph trained me, 
Um, can I tell you the year that was? 1979, uh, these transcription programs were classified. Now, of course, you can go online and buy them for 50 bucks and use them for music, as you'll see here, and everything else. But um, uh, has anybody got any question, other questions for me now right before I turn my little uh, remote camera around and show you the, the transcription program itself? Yeah, nothing loaded in the bank here, Scott. It's all yours, and uh, I'll interrupt you if I have to. Okay. Yeah, let me turn it around here. And what I'm going to do first is I'm just going to let it run uh, at what we call real time. That means at the speed that it was recorded. I'm just going to, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll fast forward through some of the, uh, the dead, dead air, the dead space, so that you, you hear mostly just the, uh, the vocalizations. And this tape that I'm playing for you is exactly what Ron sent me that very first day that I got a hold of him, okay? He sent me both of these tapes, um, both the Barry tape and the Moorhead tape, as I've come to call them. Um, so I'm just gonna let it run at real time. And some of you knowing, knowing what you already know, that there's language in it, you will be able to hear, you will start to be able to hear the morphemes and the articulated phonemes what we call individual sounds and the morpheme streams uh, without me slowing it down. You will already be able to hear that there's language in it. You don't have, once you hear, once you know that it's there, you don't have to be a PhD in linguistics to hear it. It comes natural to human beings. But then once I, I, I will isolate uh, some bit of it, I will loop it and then I will begin to slow it down. And you most definitely, I've never had anyone that has sat with me through my presentation and gave a good listen to any of this that has ever uh, claimed that it could not be. And I'm quite confident I'll get the same result today. So let's go for it. Okay, here's my... Okay, and of course you can see the, uh, the this transcription program is also used for music, but it's perfect for what we're doing. Okay, so it's going to start out here with uh, I let's see. Oh, here we go. All right. Hopefully you can see my cursor there. I don't know if you can. No, it looks good from our angle. Yeah, it does. You notice it? how the bottom line is uh, smaller than the top line. I was going to say something about the stereo. They're, the both, they're both the same. They're just different frequency spectrums. That's <laughs> because it was. But uh, one of the things you will be able to see is uh, the difference between uh, the vocal footprint of the creatures uh, uh, compared to when the humans are speaking. This will be, a, you will be able to see the difference there. Speaking of sound spectrum. Um, Okay, let me put this up to uh, real time to get it started. And I'm just gonna let it run for a little while and let you hear it at real time and then we'll come back 
and go through it again and, and pick pieces out of it to slow down. So here we go, real time. Oh. There we go. Now, why is that doing it? Hold on. Oh, I don't know why I'm cutting out there. I don't know. Well, my sound's cutting out, man. That's all right. Uh, technical me, uh, glitches. I want to make sure I'm plugged in. Why don't uh, Why don't you guys discuss something else quick while I? spot here I'm going to stop it and show you how uh, crypto linguists are trained to do we stop it we loop it we well first we isolate the morpheme stream then we loop it like this and then we begin to slow it down which and you'll be able to hear it and I believe I transcribed that as Befawadi, Befailulu. Now this is this is in every way a language. You've got morpheme, you've got morphemes that are um, uttered both in the query and in the response by two different individuals. There is no clearer definition of language, but let's let's go on. We'll put it back to hundred uh, percent. And some of these will just if it sounds interesting, we'll just stop and and do it again, slow it down. Scott, real quick, a question here regarding what they're hearing. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. As far as the language itself, these morphine streams, it sounds as though there's language within sucking in on the breath instead of exhaling on the breath. Is that also something that you've learned? No, absolutely. That's yes. That's one of the things uh, the, the very first moment I heard this, these sounds, something that I knew was one of the reasons I knew it was not a human being because they are, they are creating utterances on what we call the pant as well as the exhale. Now, I'm gonna turn this around here again real quick. I can kind of show you. Now, human beings are able to do this, but, but, um, but it's very difficult for us. In other words, we can, we can talk like this if we want to, you know, okay? 
but it's very, very difficult for humans to do that. These creatures, whatever the heck they are, are doing it with ease. And I think that's, that's part of the reason that it sounds like they're speaking twice as fast as us is that they are, they are uh, articulating vocal sounds on the inhale or on the pant as well as on the exhale. And you can hear it in every single one of their utterances. They don't speak like we, like humans do, like <gasps> take a big, big, deep breath and then just oh, yell all the stuff we want to yell out, you know, and then, no, they're constantly articulating while they are breathing. Is that something uh, that you find in primate language as well? I mean, uh, uh, listening to chimpanzees or no, gorillas, no. do they exhibit that quality as well? Uh, the only, no. Well, well, yes, they do. They make, um, we can't call them utterances. They make sounds, but they don't articulate language. The only sounds that, that chimpanzees make are what we might call the vowel sounds. They can go, ooh, right? But they cannot, they do not have the apparatus that humans have. They don't have the tracheal tree. 